Good morning, all to the Friday edition of the Damage Report. I'm John Arola. He's Brett Ehrlich. Who else could he be? Brett, how's it going? It's going fine. I've got a stuck right here. Yeah. Is it because you lifted a weight? There was some no, talk about I that before the show. No, because I did a bit about lifting weights, and that's more physical activity than I've done in a very long while time. while pretending to lift a weight? I mean, even Trump was able to do his uh, uh thing, and I think he was okay after. Yeah, I but think. John, he's done that for over a year in his soapbox <laughs> that's speech. True. So he has a that's lot true. of reps under his belt, but you know, obviously it doesn't work. So his belt is more of a- more, more could be considered, uh, you know, cordage. Thank you for being here. What what you need to know, dear listener and or viewer, is there any other way that someone could consume this? I don't know. We'll look into it. Um, is that right now we're talking about one of the stories we will be talking about before the show. And it's always weird when like we have to stop in the middle of a conversation to begin the show, and then we can't pick it up until later. But we're gonna, okay? Do it. it involves Taylor Swift. I personally think she shouldn't have been able to re uh, release and record her music. I'm kidding. It's not about that. But we're going to talk about her and a lot of other stuff. We're going to be checking in on the GOP primary. We're going to be checking in on uh, Trump's circle of cronies and how they're escaping consequences for what they've done. We're going to preview what will probably not that far in the future put me and Brett out on the street. So that'll be fun. And we'll be talking about movies and plantations and Christmas as well. There's a lot to talk about. So if you're on a platform that makes any sense, please hit the like button, share the stream. And you can send us comments, sweets, and super chats and be the one to get our final $100 Blue Apron gift card of the week. If you play your cards right or play your keyboard right and write in with something interesting. And with all that said, Brett, are you ready to do this thing? Let's do it. Whether you are or not, I've been more than kind. <laughs> Whether you kind or not, fairly mine. So I just got like a text message from like my healthcare provider being like, "Hey, this thing's been approved. We're gonna get, we're gonna give you a call in a half hour, and you just have to take it." I'm not. I can't. I can't take well, it. No. If you need to step away and take the call, you can. I, I'm. No. I have less of an issue with that than us discussing that right now. <laughs> so anyway, put your phone away. Get your A in gear and let's talk about our first story. I'm not I'm not a candidate. This is my kids would say that's my jam. Nikki Haley, down by 26 in her home state to Trump, attacks DeSantis. Too lame to lead, too weak to win. DeSantis, down 32 to Trump in Iowa, attacks Nikki Haley. You can't trust Tricky Nikki. There's only one candidate trying to stop Trump. Chris Christie is the only one who can beat Trump because he's the only one trying to beat Trump. I'm in this race because the truth needs to be spoken. He is unfit. Chris Christie has indeed released his first TV ads of this GOP primary. He's putting a six-figure allocation of funds specifically in a TV play of that ad in New Hampshire. And you'll notice that he's sort of striking an interesting stance here. He is attacking Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis saying that they're, well, on the one hand, they're trailing massively behind Donald Trump. So that's an issue for them. But also, they're focusing too much on each other. Whereas he is releasing this ad focusing on them. Now, look, his point, I think, is that they're trailing. And perhaps one of the reasons they're trailing is because they're not putting enough attention into Donald Trump. And outside of this ad, irony, you know, put aside for the moment, 
he has been far more critical of Donald Trump than the rest of the Republican candidates combined. That said, I just want to just briefly point out one thing that I found funny, Brett, about that ad was that he's like, Nikki Haley's down by X in her home state. Ron DeSantis is down by a bunch in Iowa. You know who's down by more? Him. <laughs> like he specifically listed um that uh Ron DeSantis is down by a lot in Iowa. And I'm looking at it right now, Ron DeSantis has roughly five to six times the support in Iowa that Chris Christie does. So I think the joke's on him and a little bit on me because he's the one out of the group that I support. But this is his first effort, Brett. What do you make of it? Will it work for him? So uh, as of December 11th in Chris Christie's home state of New Jersey. Oh no. He is losing to Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Vivek Ramaswamy. That's why he didn't say, you know, uh, what's his name, uh, Ron DeSantis, who's trailing by to Trump in his home state, is blah blah blah. So the reason that he's attacking the other people, I can pretty much summarize by saying, Bernie Sanders had a uh, was doing very well in the primaries in 2020. But if you added up all the people who didn't, who weren't Bernie Sanders, all those other ones who were pretty similar to each other and, and mm -hmm. running against Bernie Sanders, those their support all added up would be larger than Bernie Sanders support within the. So basically, if you unite the opposition to Sanders, you get Biden. And that happened in South Carolina. A lot of people dropped out in order to galvanize that support. Yeah. That is the strategy right now. And What's happening for Christie is it should work to say, well, there's a difference between me and Donald Trump. I'm the only one who doesn't like Donald Trump. And so why are you voting for Nikki Light or Trump Light in in Nikki Haley and in DeSantis? But people, those what he doesn't understand is like those people already have the choice between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley, and they're choosing Nikki Haley. And more people are doing that than are supporting DeSantis and and uh, and and uh, you know, Christine, Christie himself. Yeah, yeah. Look, it for all of them, there there are bad strategies and worse strategies. Like, there's no like instant. If you just press this button, then Donald Trump no longer you know gets seventy percent of the support. It's tough, but I agree with him that it does look like DeSantis and Nikki Haley are like fighting for like they're they're competing over each other's supporters. Even though we're one of them to get all of them, it wouldn't be enough. Like the only way that this can work is you peel off people who support Trump, because that's the majority of all of them. Now, the only way that you can do that is to attack him. And I don't even think that that's really likely to succeed, but that's the only way that it could possibly succeed. You disagree? Well, you just like they're going to attack him, John. They will eventually attack him. They need to win this battle before they fight the next one. Trump isn't on the stage with anybody. They whoa, need to be the last wait, one standing on the they stage. They need to win this. Well, yeah, but I was in like two weeks. Like, how much longer can you wait for that? Well, Don't you kind of get on it, or else you're going to be off the stage. Well, it's a longer road than that. You, you think just as Iowa. long as they do it before Super Tuesday or something? Well, A, you never know in Iowa because it's a caucus state. So Iowa yeah. being the first thing is exactly in every precinct, the thing I'm talking about happens, not the thing you're talking about. <laughs> okay. What I'm talking about is everyone's in a gym together. 
And mm. everybody's like, as long as Trump's support is under 50%, really, in, in every little precinct, then uh, unless it's over 50%, then everybody else, when their person gets eliminated in every round, they go to the person who's not Trump, unless their second choice is Trump. Is Trump. Well, if their which, second choice is Trump, then everybody's screwed. I mean, I, I, th which, I think for a lot of them, the second choice is Trump. The issue right now is he's at 48% in Iowa as of today. But so what the question is, what can any of them do? Chris Christie's playing his hand. What the hell else is he supposed to do? Is it a winning hand? I think, I mean, and I think that's implicit in your analysis. Well, I, th no, I think the path not. is harder for him than for some of the others, admittedly. I mean, and you, by the way, pointed out how bad he's doing in New Jersey. I don't even, you could have stressed it even. He's at 4% in New Jersey. Yeah. That's like they chose him as their governor. It's crazy to me that he's doing so poorly. Bridgegate. Um, but what's that? Bridgegate. Bridgegate. Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, by the way, in New Hampshire, and this is where he's running the ads, Trump is at 46%. Notably, Christie is actually in third place in New Hampshire. Ron DeSantis is in fifth place behind Ramaswamy. So I guess it makes sense if, if he's going to have any chance to break through, it is probably going to have to be in New Hampshire because as of right now, in Iowa, he's at 3.8%. So he's got significantly more support in New Hampshire. Um, so tough road regardless. By the way, really fast, just note, the ad is being shown across local and cable TV, as you might expect, live sports broadcasts, that, that makes sense. But it's also targeting CNN, CNBC, and MSNBC's Morning Joe, which I just think is such an interesting strategy for a Republican primary candidacy to be targeting these places where, again, like, Maybe there's, I, I guess, maybe some Nikki or some DeSantis supporters, maybe who are watching that, but I don't think a lot of the committed MAGA people are watching it. So, again, I think that that reveals a lot about the strategy. So, in New Final Hampshire, it's a version of an open primary. So, mm -hmm. one of the strategies, like if you're an undeclared voter, you could just show up and be like, I want to vote in that one. And then you mm -hmm. can't vote in the other one. Yeah. Um, and because I mean, and that's a strategy. And the other last thing I'll say is the road is long to the White House, sort of. And historically, people have been like Howard Dean was leading until he went, yeah, and everybody galvanized against him. Like it's less likely will happen under Trump, but like you know, you've mm -hmm. got to you know that's why we play the games um, as the sports analogy, you know, to make yeah. a sports analogy. Yeah, it is going to be tougher because obviously Trump is much more of a known quantity on the national stage than Howard Dean was at that point. Um, and you're right about the open primary. Um, I never know how much, like this isn't even an explicit strategy to bring Democrats in. Sometimes they try that. And even when people try that, I don't know how successful even that is. In this particular case, he has going for him that the Democratic Party has done a pretty good job of pretending that they're not even going to have a primary. So many Democrats might be willing to say, well, I guess it's not going to matter since we're not having one, even though there is. Um, and so that frees them up a bit to cross over, perhaps. Um, maybe, maybe that's the best Hail Mary that he has is to do some, you know, sort of tricky quasi underhanded stuff, uh, you know, based on the, the structure of their primary. We'll see. With that said, why don't we move on to another story? Because we have a lot that we do want to get to. Two Trump-aligned lawyers have now had their apology letters that they were required to write as part of their plea deals released. And we're going to read them in whole for you. And it will not take long, as you'll see. But first, before we give you the apologies of Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesebro, we want to remind you of what 
I think an at least relatively good quality apology looks like from Jenna Ellis. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. For those failures of mine, Your Honor, I have taken responsibility already before the Colorado bar who censured me. And I now take responsibility before this court and apologize to the people of Georgia. So that is Jenna Ellis. I don't know how honest that crying is. Maybe it's real, maybe it's not. I don't know. But but even if it's not real, she is at least trying to give across the idea that she is truly sorry for what she has done. Now I want you to compare that to the apology by Sidney Powell that reads, I apologize for my actions in connection with the events in Coffee County. That's the entire apology. And I don't know if maybe she talked a little bit with Kenneth, Kenneth Chesebro, but his apology says, I apologize to the citizens of the state of Georgia and of Fulton County for my involvement in count 15 of the indictment. That's maybe worse because she's saying whatever it is that happened, I apologize for all of it. He's like that specific count in the indictment I apologize for. Brett, I, I don't love him. I don't think that those are good apologies. What do you think? It has a severe, it is your birthday energy. <laughs> um, not happy birthday at all. So with Jenna Ellis, her whole defense is that she was this young, naive, uh, budding lawyer. And that she got in over her head and people who understood and appreciated the legal process better than her took advantage of her. And it shows completely in the two different apology styles. Because hers, like she doesn't understand that the only reason for you to plea to this is so that you're on the record having shown contrition. And so mm -hmm. everybody could say, not only did you plead guilty, you apologize for it. Why would you apologize for something that you didn't do? You can't go back on it in the future. But the more specifics you give in your apology, the more people are able to use that against you in the future. Powell and Chesbro know that, mm -hmm. and they acted it out that way. And and poor you know Ellis is just like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm crying, my bad. That's yeah. whether it's a <laughs> genuine apology or not. Like people cry when they're sad. She might be sad for other things besides this at the time. Like her life is is falling apart. She's reading something, potentially thinking about something else, but it's also possible that she genuinely feels it. But one thing is certain that she is very much that that um, that naive moron that that she got in trouble for being. Mm -hmm. Well, um, they they seem to be doing pretty well for themselves. The other two, I mean, you know, they they had to do their technical apology. It was sort of an apology, and that was a part of the deal. As a result of that, they got a sentence that included probation, but no jail time. And they were also allowed to plead guilty under Georgia's first offender law, meaning that if they can complete their probation without violating the terms, you know, like doing another coup or committing any other crime, their records will be wiped clean. So that sort of ties into what you had said about the way that they structured the apologies. Like very soon, this might totally be off their records. I don't think most people will forget about their involvement. I think this kind of follows you to the grave. Um, but it doesn't look like they're gonna have any really long term consequences. And um, by the way, I loved your, your reference to the it is your birthday. Other people had some thoughts. Um, Crazy Frank wrote she really poured out her soul there. Uh, Chevron said could have been worse. Dear Coffee County, I'm sorry I got caught. I like James's Bart Simpson chalkboard energy there. 
That's pretty good. Troy says, I think the judge should have insisted on at least 500 words for essay and creative fiction. Um, but we know that that would have just been a chat GPT deal at that point. I'm assuming they wrote the 13 word apologies themselves. Any other thoughts? Well, they definitely wrote them within by hand. Before I saw that that was your um, in your graphic, I was like, yeah, cool. So now write it 500 times on the chalkboard for me. <laughs> like That's what it felt like. Yeah, and by the way, it has this like totally insincere child sort of thing. And then if we go back to graphic two, that is just so heightened by the juvenile penmanship of Kenneth Cheesebro. It just re like there is nothing genuine and adult and professional in substance or in style in this non-apology. Um, I love I love that he's also only apologizing to the citizens. But the illegals, I did nothing wrong. I maintain my innocence. <sighs> and they're going to get away with it. Okay, well, anyway, we're, we're going to keep track. Away with it. Well, they got the plea deal. They're not going to jail or anything. It raised their profile. Like, they're probably going to get other jobs as a result of it. I mean, I don't think Sidney Powell is like totally like, she hasn't been exiled to the hinterlands 100% or anything. No? But I would argue they already it. were in the category where they would get the exact same jobs from the exact same people. Now they just have more egg on their face and ignominy so that people who only people who are using them for like silly grifts would do it. But I think this, the more wily, horrible people will not hire these individuals in the future. It will only be strange attempts at lower okay. and lower profile uh, uh and and some some That's many fair. will fail and eventually yeah they they'll hit a a couple lucky rungs on the ladder as they fall down yeah. it but um you know maybe they can supplement their income with some cameos they could they could script out apologies for other people that take three or four seconds to record they could bring in a lot of money at least they didn't write my b <laughs> I think the word apology was probably required to be in there by law and that was literally the only regulation <laughs> anyway with that said we do have to take our first break but when we come back Taylor Swift Gaza, Megan Kelly, together at last after this. Okay, everybody, let's have some fun, not on the topic, but perhaps between me and Brett, starting with this. A group that NGO monitored has described as highly political, presenting a highly biased view of the Israel-Palestine war, ignoring any Palestinian responsibility for hardship and contributing to the demonization of Israel. That is the group Taylor Swift thought it might be fun to help raise money for, attend the fundraiser for, and she owes Israelis and Jewish Americans an apology. And I hope they boycott her events until she issues it, because attending this thing was wrong. It was wrong. Do some Googling. See what they do in Gaza to gaze. See about women's rights in Gaza, Taylor. Megan Kelly quite angry at Taylor Swift there because Taylor Swift did sort of some promotion for a charity. Basically, her and her friends attended a show by actor and stand-up comic Rami Youssef, who posted to Instagram that the proceeds for his tour would be donated to the American Near East Refugee Aid Organization. This is an NGO providing relief to Gaza as it faces a bombing campaign and invasion from Israel. So she provided what NGO Monitor, another organization, has said about Anira. Megan Kelly did and said that Taylor Swift should do more Googling about organizations that will be recipients of 
aid from charity events that she went to, which is interesting because when you Google other things that have been said about that group, including by NGO Monitor, NGO Monitor said that most of Anira's focus is on development assistance and emergency relief, and the quality of these programs is considered to be very high, which is high praise from the organization that Megyn Kelly cited as her only source for saying that this group is not deserving of any money. No one should raise any money for it. And I found in particular her saying that she, Taylor Swift should not help raise money for Anira because Anira provides a biased view of the conflict. As if Megyn Kelly is committed to describing the, the, the conflict in all of its complexity and nuance with um, you know, balanced humanity and compassion for everyone being affected by it. The only reference I think that she made to the suffering that this charity money is supposed to help uh, allay is that there's Palestinian uh, responsibility for it. Other than that, there's nothing. She doesn't think. You know, Taylor Swift should instead demand that the money goes to a different Gazan relief organization. She doesn't want it to be promoted. She doesn't want Taylor Swift to be involved in raising any of this money as long as the money is intended to help those who are currently suffering or unhoused in Gaza. We have a lot more on this, but Brett, what do you think? Yeah, don't do what Megyn Kelly does, anybody. I try not um, to. Don't do it. Megyn Kelly is on the record. I mean, her recent employment history shows she's on the record for adapting her coverage based on who's paying her at the time. She was at Fox. She was gone from Fox. She had a daytime show where she didn't really bring up a lot of the stuff she would bring up on Fox. And now that she's back on her own or doing the Sirius XM show, she's yeah. back to the thing she used to do. So that you just have, I mean, it's Megyn Kelly. You kind of have to understand that about her. Um, when it comes, to, I am certain that Anira is, is, you know, it whether or not they provide a biased um, uh, take on what's happening in the region, um, that shouldn't re, I mean, yes, if they're doing things that actively like are anti-Semitic and horrible um, and, and they are doing a, da a disservice to a bunch of people, then yes, find another agency to, to donate to. But if the money that you're, if your goal is to raise money for people who are innocent victims of all of this, and they get the money to the innocent victims of all of this, then you can give your money to those people. Mm -hmm. But I think Taylor Swift really is more representative of quote, most decent human beings than Megyn Kelly is. Because most decent human beings are like, I want peace, I want stability, and I don't want suffering. And if you're more like Megyn Kelly and you look for your opening to vilify a certain group, then you're doing the wrong thing. I agree. That was very reasonable. You were not doing what Megyn Kelly does there. Yeah, yeah I um it's weird. To, like I am used to seeing. People like Megyn Kelly on a show like Megyn Kelly's do something akin to, and I don't just mean in this conflict, I mean in other situations that have been like this over the decades, is uh, would say something like, it's terrible that so many of them are dying, but insert real politic defense of whatever the status quo is. But they don't even do that anymore. <laughs> like. She doesn't even have to pretend that she cares about the more than 18 and a half thousand people who have died. The vast majority of whom are almost certainly not affiliated with, let alone in Hamas. She doesn't have to pretend that 
at all. And not just her, like you might say, well, what ethical obligations does she have? She's just you know, a blowhard on a show. True, but we've had multiple Republican debates now that there have been effectively no references by the candidates or even by the moderators to civilian casualties in Gaza. Even though every time they do one of these debates, the number is significantly higher than it was during the last one. They don't even have to do that. And in particular, when it comes to the aid, like it's not like the aid money is going to bring back the thousands of dead kids, but it might help to stop more from being added to that number. Because the, what's killing people in Gaza is not just 2000 pound bombs. Half of Gaza's population is estimated to literally be starving right now. It's been described, by the way, the situation there as a catastrophe, a tsunami, a humanitarian tsunami, actually. It's not only a catastrophe. And more than 90% of the people in Gaza have been driven from their homes. It's winter, there's little electricity, there's virtually no internet. There's less than 100 trucks getting in on a daily basis to feed a population of millions of people. It's not even, I'm not even saying that Megyn Kelly has to say, uh, give them the aid and uh, no more bombing of civilians or whatever. I don't think she's gonna change her position on that, but she wants to have the bombing and have them not eat cake too. It's so bizarre, the moral position that they are allowed to hold and still have significant audiences. Brett. I mean, this basically, how deep do you wanna understand what's happening? Is a real question that everybody doesn't ask themselves. But they're mm -hmm. they're acting based on it. It's very difficult for me to put my to to really articulate this a lot. Um, but mo for most people, the extent of their political interaction with folks is it's a you know value signaling, and it is what the hell can I do in this world? Mm -hmm. And I, I need to feel good about who I am. Now people do. That people always oversimplify everything in order to feel good about who they are, or they overcomplicate everything till they get to a point where they feel good about it. And whether they're the, the amount that they're willing to look into histories and interactions and people and and what and, and ever and put themselves themselves in other people's shoes is dependent on how long they have to work before they feel good about themselves. And and I don't blame anyone for that. I understand that like, and Taylor Swift is like, I wanna learn, I wanna do things. I And most people are like, I want to give money to the refugees and the people whose life has been made hell by world politics, okay? Because to a certain extent, everyone's life has been made hell at some point by world politics, unless you're like, I mean, even if you were English, but you'd have to go back a very long time, you know? and. And everybody has it, but a lot of people are willing to ignore it based on what they can get away with and how many people can be in their Venn diagram of 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 similar like tweet themes before they're like, no, I'm good here. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, that's it. Like it, it, it's it's all over the place. It's like I, I hear it all the time when people are talking about the IDF. We get we get mad at IDF soldiers, but are you mad at at uh, at Vietnam veterans? Who were conscripted? Mm -hmm. You, no one does that. No one does that because it's easy. It's so goddamn easy to say. Well, I'm, and we said it on this network. I'm just mad at the soldiers, at the IDF. The IDF is doing. 
I know carpenters Wait, in America who, who are former IDF soldiers because they had to be because of where they were born. They don't well, for like context. It. You have you haven't said this, but I think people need to understand that it, it is it's compulsory military service in yeah. Israel. Everybody sererves in some form or another, which is what you're referring to. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so really, really fast. Like, just you know, because everyone you get into these, and I'm in a monologue, right? But because it, it's just like bouncing around in my mind. Because because for me, it's like most of the discourse is good, but there's certain parts where people cross over into like this oversimplification, horrible, like either anti-Semitic or, or Islamophobic conversation, because mm -hmm. they just kind of they're like, Ugh, I need a villain. Yeah. Well, and they I mean, get, if you and, pay attention to world politics for long enough, you'll find them definitely. But so I, I, you might have, you might be following more of the online conversation about this than me. I can, I can say I haven't seen a lot of specific demonization of, I don't know, individual IDF soldiers or just the concept of military service. I think what mainly it's Israeli military strategy. Like, and, and by the way, I, I would say my approach to this, I think, would be very similar to what it would be in the case of Vietnam soldiers. Those individual soldiers who participated in like, you know, Mile A or whatever, I think definitely should have our scorn, but we should also bear in mind that the vast majority of them wanted no interest in being in Vietnam. And I would apply the same thing to the IDF. If there's particular people who are stripping down Palestinians and marching them around in freezing temperatures or whatever, or, you know, other stuff that individuals like cops here might be caught doing, then I think we should apply our scorn to them. I don't think simply the fact that you're a part of a group whose organization you are required to be a part of makes you a villain. Thank you, and I just ask that people be their own, you know, police of that discourse. But every it happens halfway through every diatribe. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I will. I will try to check myself mid diatribe. This is from a poll conducted by the Israel Democracy Institute, which is not a polling organization that I have a lot of knowledge or history with. So bear that in mind. Um, this is not morning consult. This isn't, you know, whatever. Um, but uh, after the pause in the hostilities that happened last month, they say that more than three quarters of Israelis said that the offensive should resume without adjustments that would reduce either Palestinian civilian casualties or the international pressure that is coming as a result of those civilian casualties. A Tel Aviv University poll conducted in late October, obviously that's in a much earlier phase of this conflict, said that only 10% of Israelis thought the army was using too much firepower. Now, I'm assuming those numbers would be different because the numbers in terms of how many had died or been driven from their home was very different in late October than it is now. Um, but uh, bear in mind, Biden, they're once again pressuring for a change in strategy to lower civilian deaths. That's at least what the news is saying today. So, Brett, what do you make of that? But like, that's it. This is how the this is how it all works, right? Okay. What the did polls I do? from late October. Well, I acknowledge that you did, that's, but that's no, what but we like, have. I but like, the, but like Rasmussen didn't poll today. Yesterday's coverage about dumb bombs. Like, what the f you know, like it. It it's so difficult for me because it's like I hate it. I feel like the referee in a sport I hate. Like I hate it. <laughs> I hate it all. It's the dumbest yes. sport in the world. But everybody seems to be doing this right now. Like you just asked. Like it's the easy for you to say Olympics right now. Like according mm -hmm. to people who don't live there and didn't live there and who's you know everybody's relative in this region was the is was the victim of a horrible or individuals alive in that region. Everybody there was just like the world just tried to kill everybody there, everybody there.
Everybody there has recently, they've recently attempted to kill everybody or their grandfather there. Mm -hmm. So when these things happen, when when horrible, horrible events occur, because everybody understands that this is like a powder keg of old world animosity. Like for for I don't I'll just speak for Jew, like. And I'll speak for all Jews. No one likes doing it. I'm not that Jewish. I didn't get bar mitzvah, but it's like, it's like everybody who has ever run this region has eventually just been like, today we're gonna kill the Jews. Mm-hmm. More often it's Christians who did this. Depending on the ascendancy or decline of the empire in charge, that they've suddenly been like, now we're gonna kill Jews. All of them. All of them treated Jews as second class citizens. And this is not to justify any murder. This is not to do that. This is when people say literally in their tweets, like, I don't understand how people can be like this. The answer is there was never some military campaign that's like convert to Judaism or die. Ever. The only mass conversion to Judaism that I know of is when the Khazarai Khazagain or whatever it was called was like asked the Jews, the Muslims, and the Christians, who should we convert to? The Jews said, not us. The Christians said, don't become a Muslim. The Muslims said, don't become a Christian. And they were like, all right, we'll become Jews because they seem like the least extra. <laughs> no one else has ever done that in the history of uh, there's never been like a mass conversion because they don't want it. And so that that was a that was a bad decision, apparently. Because you can go kill a lot of people in the name of your religion, and suddenly they're willing to die for it afterward. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, and and it's like asking why a powder keg is explosive. It is because <laughs> of all the chemical things Brett. that are about to have it be that way. That's it. Th- those are, I think, that is a very helpful addition of context, religious, psychological, historical context to why we might see the polling data that we do. Yeah. I think that is very helpful. That's all, that's all my have. point is for. Yes, um, but but I would say the reason why I am interested in the polling data in this case is, as we talked about before the show, the same reason that I would be interested in when you know we find out nine years into the Iraq War that three hundred thousand Iraqi civilians have died. I want to know why so many people still support the war effort. I want to know why so many Russians still support the invasion of Ukraine when so many Russian soldiers are dying. I want to know why so many parents still think there should be effectively no regulations on guns when more, you know, kids are being blown away by like in every one of those cases, I'm sure you could have you could have a dissertation length analysis of the psychological and historical and social and cultural and economic reasons, and I think you should. As you said, the question should be how deeply do you want to understand this? And you yeah. went deeper than I think most people will. But I still want people to respond to, you know, a two-month-long bombing campaign that's killed 18 and a half thousand people by saying maybe we dial it back a little bit because many of the people who are dying were not even alive the last time there was an election in Hamas. And doing this seems almost certainly to lead to future cycles of the same sort of violence. That are the historical context you added. So I'm an outsider, religiously, historically. I've spent literally seven days in Israel in my life, I think. Um, but I am glad that you can provide a different perspective. And and uh, and I will say, like this, I I pretty much day four of this, I said what my position was going to be, and I've stuck by that, which is I know it. 
just ceasefire. Like I said that like a week after I said, but like that is me looking at Israelis who like the day that the UN was like, here's where you guys are and here's where those guys are. Like, like there was a, there's invade, you know, it's invasion, counter invasion, whatever you want to call it. Like I have to look at them and say, yeah, there was the biggest invasion since 9-11, like 2911s by, you know, whatever. And, and I have to tell them, I, I, I don't care. You should do a ceasefire because that's just how it is there. And it's, mm -hmm. it's horrible for me to say that to the faces of people who are saying like, uh, they just showed up. And killed a bunch of our people in our in our borders, which the UN said this is where it should be, and 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 I'm I'm willing to take that position publicly. Brett, I think you are very reasonable, and I'm glad we can talk about it. Obviously, it's a difficult situation, and a case could be made that you and I, even working in concert, will not solve it. But we can at least try to be reasonable about it, and hopefully provide an environment for other people to be reasonable about it. Do not test that hypothesis by checking the YouTube comments later. But the live comments, I think, quite reasonable. That sound effect sounded a little bit like Howard Dean, who, by the way, was my candidate in that race. Brett, was he yours at one point? Uh, my brother had a history of working for people who would later turn out to be in prison or terrible. So he was just yeah. like fresh out of college and worked for John Edwards. So Ooh, I was like, I oh, that guy seems that. nice. And then he was like, my daddy worked in a mill. And also I'm having a, an affair with my wife yeah. who died of cancer. He uh, seemed so. too slick and polished for me. I liked the more raw Howard Dean at that point. But Anyway, that's not what we got. Okay, so with that, if you're just joining us now, please hit the like button because we've got some news to jump into. Meghan McCain is now threatening to sue her former colleagues over at The View for what she says is spreading slanderous accusations against her. Is she right? Does she have a case? Well, we'll have to wait to see if it makes it to real court. But before all that, we're gonna pick it up in the damage report court. I've missed that. So the view was discussing Hunter Biden's alleged influence peddling that's being investigated by the GOP right now. And during that talk, co-host Anna Navarro insinuated that a certain someone had done the same sort of thing saying, look, did Hunter Biden influence peddle on his last name? Yes, he did. So did half of Washington. People sitting at this table did it. This caused a shocked reaction from her co-host, Alyssa Farah Griffin then asked who at this table peddled their last name to which Navarro responded, I'm not talking about currently. So you can do the math on that. I think we know who she's talking about, although she didn't name her that could matter for the decision of the court. To which Meghan McCain responded, I don't understand why my former colleagues at The View bring me up and slander me on an almost weekly basis. It has been years, move on, I have. I have never been accused of a crime in my life and am a patriotic American. I would never and have never influenced peddled in my life, let alone with foreign adversaries. Not all politicians children are the same and I am no Hunter Biden. All accusations are absurd, defamatory and slanderous. I will be consulting my lawyers regarding what was libeled against me on The View this morning. And then goes on to say, The View is an ABC News news program. I do not take it lightly when any news program suggests I engage in criminal behavior, especially as a former employee of ABC News. 
So the uh, lawsuit could be dropping any moment now, Brett. What do you think? Is she guilty? Uh, in this case, I guess that would be wrong to be mad. Uh, or is she innocent and this case is merited? She is a mistrial. I declare a mistrial because they're obviously <laughs> talking about Abby Huntsman. <laughs> Governor John Huntsman, former UN ambassador or Chinese ambassador John Huntsman. There, it's not just one famous politician's kid that graced the table of the view. And mm -hmm. also influence peddling. Uh, I'm pretty sure Elizabeth Hasselbeck also did that. Try peddling influence off of her famous husband, Matt Hasselbeck, who won the Super Bowl, I think. <laughs> so I think, but will not Google. Will ref I refuse to Google anything. But mm -hmm. like, no, it's obvious. Like the it's an opinion news show. They don't have you there for your award-winning journalism, Megan McCain. They have you there to try to influence your fellow panelists and transitively America towards your conservative position mm. on various news items. You were you you were there because of your name. You never at any point said, "Nope, I think it's just cuz my last name is McCain that I kept getting all these news jobs thrown at me despite my demonstrable uh, in in ability to effectively execute this job, you never said yeah. I'm not qualified. You said thank you. I don't blame you for that. I blame I, I blame America. I guess for always liking the offspring, and I guess uh, the world for kind of always liking the offspring of people they kind of like. Hundred percent. Yes. She Megan McCain. I was going to say Kelly. Megan McCain is not guilty for using her father's name to get basically every media job that she's ever had. She is guilty of not acknowledging that that's why the jobs were proffered in the first place. Um, anybody who gets handed a job that pays well and is fun to do and isn't that much work should take it and shouldn't feel guilty about it. But you should be willing to step back and say, why did I get this position? Um, now, is that influence peddling? I don't know. I would also say that Anna Navarro is not saying that Meghan McCain was like approaching the UAE or anything. They mean in the same way that Hunter Biden, and I literally said this yesterday in the program, every one of his jobs he got because his last name was Biden. That is indisputably true. It's as true of her and Anna Navarro was using the same sort of loose definition of influence peddling specifically on their last name. As uh, as Hunter Biden was, so no, I think she is guilty in this case. Yeah, it's not it's not slander, it's not libel or defamation or whatever. It was a vague insult, not even specifically uh, attributed to you. She is guilty of being nowhere near as entertaining as Hunter Biden's exploits. That's true as well. It happens all the time, and they don't always succeed as much as Meghan McCain has to her credit, like Luke Russert. Uh, people gave him a job. It didn't really last for very long. So she yeah. did a good job. She got quite a bit out of it. But like, I think this is just exactly like I cut a little too close to the quick right there. And she she gets a little upset. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will end with the way that I began. Again, I am sort of defending her. I know that it must seem weird because I, I believe I've insulted her multiple times here. Like, put yourself in the position, the difficult position of someone who's the child to a senator. Like, what is she supposed to do if she's genuinely interested in the media? Is she supposed to turn down the jobs? Like, 
every position she gets is at least arguably going to be as a result of her name. Even if she's super interested in it, is working super hard. I don't know that we have evidence of that in this particular case. But let's say devil's advocate that she was super committed. Like you're in a difficult position at that point. So I do have a little bit of empathy there. I would just have a hundred times as much empathy if you acknowledged that you got the positions because of your name. Yeah, and then the the ultimate hybrid of Abby Huntsman, or I guess Megan McCain and Luke Russert is actually Tucker Carlson because his father was both a a, mm-hmm. a media figure, Dickie Carlson, and also the ambassador to the Seychelles, so a political figure as well. Sure. Hold on, Kyle is saying John is defending her, so he isn't a hypocrite when the show becomes the damage report with Raina Idarola. Hundred percent. And by the way, a version of this I'm sure can be applied to virtually anyone. Some people have connections behind the scenes. It's not their name, but they have connections. I have, you know, the, I'm a white male. Typically, that's helped in America. I'm ridiculously attractive. That obviously provides benefits. You just have to acknowledge that stuff, and then you're innocent once again. Brett, how did you get this position? You're funny. Uh, how did I get my position here? I was in the same <laughs> building. How did I get my position at ABC? Hard work, no name recognition. Thank you very there much. You go. Watch the there year, you go. 2023. I don't know when. In a watch it, everyone. Watch it. Okay, and uh, watch us while you can, because you might not be able to watch us for much longer. Stand by for the rise of AI. I'll be back. Hasta la vista. Sorry, John. I'm afraid I can't do that. The world's first fully AI generated and hosted news network is set to launch next year. This is LA based station Channel One, which aims to be the first nationally syndicated news station to use AI avatars instead of human anchors. They have a promotional video sort of laying out how this is going to work. Take a look. Hello. And welcome to Channel One, a new way of consuming, reporting, and thinking about the news powered by artificial intelligence. Today, you'll witness AI-generated stories and headlines, captivating visuals and data-driven insights. From global news to finance to entertainment, we'll show you how technology enables us to bring you a global perspective 24-7, right from the heart of our AI-native newsroom. All presented by our team of AI-generated reporters. Let's start with our reporters. You can hear us and see our lips moving. But no one was recorded saying what we're all saying. I'm powered by sophisticated systems behind the scenes. And I can speak in any language. Channel One's anchors can even be completely generated to have their own personality, appearance, and voice. I'm reminded at times like this that I don't have a backup plan. This is the one thing that I can do and make a living on, and now that's going to be gone. Thanks a lot, founder and entrepreneur Adam Mosum, who said that the news aired on the network will come from legacy outlets. So again, bear in mind, the AI, as it always does, is going to rely on what humans produce. It can only reuse that stuff. It can't do anything on its own. It can't go into a war zone and interview the survivors. It can't do any of that stuff. Just bear that in mind. Um, They will, they say, have commissioned freelance reporters. To the extent that they do that, then it's not all AI generated, but we'll see. Additionally, they will generate their own reporting from public records and government documents. And like with all AI, I'm sure they will make no mistakes, not hallucinate in any way. And you can take to the bank everything that they report. They're also, by the way, going to be producing their own stock footage and photos 
through AI generation. So they, they say they're gonna have captivating visuals. They're not real visuals. They will just be AI generated stuff of like crime scenes and everything. Like how Brett, how is this gonna work in practice and are you worried? Um, it kind of already works this way in practice. As someone who has held auditions for hosts to audition and then we hire them, uh, not mm-hmm. here. Previous, I've never interviewed anyone to be hired here, other than like as you know that's on camera. Um, but the uh, it's it's amazing. Like they they give you like there's already a, an organization called the Newswire that sends the stories to places, and the the there are plenty of news reporters and local news people who actually do write their own stuff. But a lot of the packages you see are just handed down from on high, and the meat puppets, aka the uh, the hosts, do that already. Now this is just another invention in a long series of inventions that has cut down on the total number of people in newsrooms. They actually sell one man show news desks. So I would sit at a desk like this, and like an organ player uses their feet and their hands to kind of control the base and all the different things. You sit there and you do an entire local news broadcast with prompter you're doing yourself, taking this, the elements do you're doing yourself. It has been that way for a very long time and yeah. it's terrifying, but but you know, we have been conditioned to actually accept a robotic voice telling us the news and we take it as authoritative. Yeah, I um I, I have more to say about this. So unfortunately, we are at the end of our first hour. I think at the beginning of the aftermath, we're gonna talk for a minute or two about this because I just have a lot to say. So uh, thank you everybody who's listening on the podcast. Go rate and reviews, please. And for the rest of you, we will be back after this. 